0: Jules Rubin grew up in the 1970s as an only child, raised by a single father. His dad, Harold, was an entrepreneur.
1: Well, he was the porn king of Chicago. So I guess maybe that makes me the porn prince of Chicago. I don't know.
0: Harold Rubin owned a combination adult bookstore, massage parlor, and nude modeling studio. He got the name for it from a woman he'd taken to a costume party. He'd showed up at her apartment carrying a medieval shield with nothing underneath.
1: She said, you're Weird Harold. Apparently that's how he got the nickname, and it stuck.
0: Weird Harold the person was sex-crazed and shameless. Weird Harold's The Business was a porno superstore. As a five-year-old, Jules rode his tricycle up and down the hallway.
1: So you'd walk in, and then as you turn to your left, you would notice the church confessional... (laughs) And that's where the register was.
0: Weird Harold thrived on attention, though he mostly attracted the negative kind. Newspapers called him a scummy pervert, a loathsome smut peddler, and Chicago's leading creep. He also had more than 30 arrests on his record for stuff like selling obscene material and running a house of prostitution.
1: He was raided so many times. He always knew it was coming. Whenever the raid would come, I would spend the night at the babysitter's house.
0: (laughs) The porn king of Chicago reigned for just five years. In 1975, Weird Harold's landlord canceled the store's lease. Harold Rubin gave up his business, moved to the suburbs, and focused on a different obsession, antiques. He didn't make his best finds at secondhand stores or rummage sales. He preferred to do his digging in places he wasn't supposed to be. Empty offices, an old optometrist clinic, even a medical repository.
1: You walk in and there are shelves upon shelves of ox eyeballs in formaldehyde, pig fetuses, lamb kidneys, you name it.
0: When he went on these adventures, Harold Rubin brought along his son as an extra set of hands.
1: It was just, come on, we're leaving. Then we'd be at an abandoned building, and he'd be finding a way in.
0: One day in the early 1980s, when Jules was around 11, his dad drove him to a decrepit-looking block on Chicago's near-south side. Their target that day was an old hotel.
1: The front doors were boarded and chained. You had to push them open and squeeze through, and that's how you got in.
0: The building they snuck into had opened in the 19th century. Back then, it was called the Lexington.
1: The downstairs were very grandiose. You know, they had a grand ballroom with a mezzanine and chandeliers. And at one time, it was a very nice place, that's for sure.
0: And what did it look like by the time you started going there?
1: So when you walked in, there was this huge, God, it had to have been 20 foot across hole in the ceiling. I mean, there's no electricity. Uh, you got a flashlight at best. Yeah, every, I mean, it is Chicago, there's rats. You, you hear things and that gives you the ookies.
0: Jules and his father moved from floor to floor, taking inventory, just like they'd done in so many other abandoned spaces. To me, the hotel was
1: just another building. And I think for him, Uh, It was just another building until he found out that it wasn't. And once he realized that history's crime boss stayed here, that just lit the fire.
0: The crime boss who stayed at the Lexington was the notorious Al Capone. Harold Rubin had stumbled into the former headquarters of a criminal icon. When he discovered that, he began to wonder. What treasures had America's most fabled gangster hidden away?
1: You're talking about a a place that housed Al Capone on a regular basis, so
0: there's got to be something down there. He wouldn't be the only one who thought there were secrets stashed inside the Lexington Hotel. In 1986, a TV special would fuel a nationwide frenzy over Al Capone and the bounty he may have left behind.
2: I'd never seen reality television like this unfolding as we all watched it together.
3: We didn't know if we were gonna find bodies. We didn't know if we were gonna find tunnels. We didn't know if we were gonna find riches. You
1: find the map with the X on it, you wanna know what's under that X.
0: In this week's episode, An abandoned building in Chicago becomes the center of the entertainment universe and the site of a legendary American fiasco. This is one year, 1986, the mystery of Al Capone's vaults.
4: This office is just, it's like Pee Wee's Playhouse, except for a historian. Yeah,
0: We're in a converted old. auto parts factory, southwest of downtown yeah. Chicago. It's now full of offices and artist studios.
4: A lot of these are old architectural plans and drawings. And so here we've got a, various historical properties. And yeah,
0: This office belongs to a man who's been conserving pieces of his hometown since he was in elementary school.
4: My name is Tim Samuelson, and I was a preservation specialist with Chicago Commission on... God damn it. (laughs) I can't remember where I worked.
0: Tim worked at the Commission on Chicago Landmarks back in the 1980s. Later, he became the city's first official cultural historian. He has a personal collection of around 25,000 artifacts a lot of which are on display right here.
4: Well, this is an old record player. The sound goes through this hollow tube it gets bigger and bigger and makes this giant horn and it's all run by spring power. That's the kind of thing that Al Capone might listen to for entertainment up in his room in the Lexington Hotel. It's probably about the right date.
0: Alphonse Capone was born in Brooklyn in 1899, one of nine children of Italian immigrant parents. Legend has it that he left school for good in the sixth grade after punching his teacher in the face. As a teenager, he fell in with some low-level gangsters and got slashed outside a saloon, the injury that made him scarface. He set off for Chicago at the dawn of the Prohibition era. That's when he leveled up from a small-time hood to a criminal mastermind.
4: The main part of what Al Capone is known for was running the networks of illegal liquor, pulling everyone together to be able to manufacture, transport, deliver liquor throughout the city without interruption.
0: Capone's organization eventually branched out into gambling and prostitution. They ruled the streets with bloody efficiency.
4: Al Capone enters Chicago court at height of his career and leaves still king of bootleggers, his reign of terror still to take its toll of dead in an underworld at war.
0: He was conniving, dangerous, an enemy of the state, but in the eyes of the public, he wasn't necessarily a villain.
4: He was almost like a folklore figure in a way with the same kind of mythology that you have from people in the West, Jesse James. Although everybody knew he was behind horrific things of, of murder or extortion, many people had a kind of warm feeling to him like you would for some kind of mythical fictional hero.
0: Capone was richer than anyone could fathom. One estimate pegs his net worth at $40 million, nearly $700 million today. He wanted the world to see that wealth, spending big on diamond jewelry, silk suits, and a bulletproof Cadillac. The
5: entire car throughout is steel line. The glass on the windshield is
1: one inch and a quarter thick.
0: All the while, Capone presented himself as a man of the people, he ran a soup kitchen for the needy and lived in a modest two-flat apartment building on the south side. His headquarters was seven miles away at the Lexington Hotel on Michigan Avenue and what's now called Surmac Road. All right, so what are we seeing here?
4: Okay, so now we are at a mouth of an alley that originally served the Lexington Hotel.
0: Tim took us over to Michigan and Cermak and told us what the Lexington looked like when it was first built.
4: A 10-story 1890s building. It was really dignified when it was new. Reddish terracotta in ornamental designs. It had bay windows that stuck out, a round corner turret. But by
0: the prohibition years, it had lost a lot of its luster.
4: This would not have been a great glamorous area. The old houses had been torn down by the 1920s and was replaced by factory buildings, and this became row upon row of automobile showrooms.
0: The Lexington Hotel became an inexpensive stop for traveling salesmen and cross-country truckers. It was the perfect out-of-the-way spot for Chicago's most infamous gangster. Capone made himself at home at the Lexington, installing a gymnasium and building out a master suite with a lavender bathtub and a gilded toilet. He'd supposedly sit at a bay window, watching his fleet of beer trucks roll past. Even if he didn't technically own the place, the hotel was his. But that wouldn't last.
5: Al Capone goes to jail. The federal government strikes its first telling blow at the underworld by convicting public enemy number one on income tax frauds.
0: Capone went to prison in 1932, eventually ending up on Alcatraz Island. He got released after 7 years when he was diagnosed with syphilis of the brain. Capone died in 1947 in Miami Beach. He was 48 years old. In Chicago, the Lexington Hotel continued its own decline. Capone's former stomping grounds became a 400-room brothel, then a flop house. In 1980, The gas and electricity got shut off for non-payment, and a judge evicted the last 150 tenants.
4: You often wonder what would happen in an apocalypse, and that was a museum of that at the Lexington Hotel. Leaky roofs will soak the interior, the paint, and plaster would be hanging from the ceiling, just like stalactites if you were in a cave.
1: At first, it was creepy, but there was just something about the Lexington.
0: For Jules Rubin's dad, Weird Harold, the Lexington's decline wasn't a tragedy. It was an opportunity.
1: I just remember that everything kind of shifted at one point. And then that's when we really started removing stuff from that hotel. In the bathroom, the walls were all a pink tile. All of the tile came out of there. All of it. The whole lobby was covered in Italian marble. It was on the floors, it was on the walls. We spent a lot of time breaking that up. How was it removed? Sledgehammer, crowbars, and just sheer human will.
0: (laughs) And where would he put all this stuff?
1: Like all of the marble was in our backyard in suburban Chicago, uh, stacked up on the side of the house, just in piles giant piles.
0: Harold Rubin planned to sell those hunks of marble as authentic relics. But he wasn't going to stop there. He thought the building's most fascinating secret was still waiting to get unearthed. There was a part of the building he hadn't explored yet. The basement. The stairs leading down to it had fallen away.
1: He actually attempted to get me to to go down there. I just, I wouldn't There was no light, uh, and I was not jumping into the dark. One of the the few times I defied my father, uh, I was not going down in that creepy-ass basement.
0: Harold Rubin was not afraid. He lowered himself into that creepy-ass basement. And what he found there was tantalizing. A concrete wall, about 125 feet long. It seemed like that wall had no functional purpose, so Why was it there? Weird Harold realized there was something on the other side of all that concrete. It was some kind of chamber, a space big enough to fit almost anything. That was it. He was obsessed. He had to know what was buried inside.
1: And the more research he did, the more excited he got about it. Honest to God, he figured they were gonna find bodies, skeletons. Whatever was in there,
0: Harold was determined to be the guy who uncovered it.
1: The easiest way through it was with explosives. Blow that wall up, boom, gone.
0: All of Harold's scavenging had led up to this one moment. He was going to get behind that wall and discover what Al Capone was hiding. This was the thing,
1: it was gonna happen.
0: But then, in an instant, his scheme imploded.
3: As a foundation, as a not-for-profit, I'm just hoping we don't find any bodies.
0: The Lexington Hotel had been bought. The new owner was a group called the Sunbow Foundation. It was led by Pat Porter, who ran one of the only woman-owned construction companies in the United States. She thought the Lexington was the perfect training ground, a place where hundreds of new workers could learn demolition and wiring as they rehabbed the building. She got the entire hotel for just $500,000, and Harold Rubin got shut out. He was mad. He was so mad
1: that this group had bought this building and locked it down tighter than a drum.
0: On the surface, Pat Porter seemed like the exact opposite of Harold Rubin. She was a feminist and a friend of City Hall. He was a chauvinist and a municipal pariah. But they were both shrewd business people and great at getting publicity. And they both understood that the Lexington Hotel was a potential goldmine.
6: Chicago's legendary gangster, Al Capone, has been dead for almost 40 years now, but he's back in the news today because of something he may have left behind. In 1985,
0: Pat Porter put on a hard hat and led a group of reporters down to that creepy-ass basement. She told them an irresistible story about Al Capone and a whole huge complex of hidden staircases and underground tunnels. But the main attraction was that enormous concrete mystery box. Harold Rubin had thought it was full of bodies. Pat Porter had another idea.
3: Ever since I walked into this building the first time, I've known I'm going to find something. My instinct is is telling me that there's money. We'll be
0: back in a minute.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
6: So, Josh, it looks like you're in your closet. (laughs) I am. You know. (laughs) That's all right.
0: Doug Llewellyn knows how to look good on screen. In the 1980s, he had the best hair on daytime television. One reporter called it a hairdo you could surf on. He also had an all-time classic TV catchphrase.
6: If you're involved in a dispute with another party such as this and you just can't seem to work it out, don't resort to taking the law into your own hands. You take them to court. The People's Court is still on the air right now. It's in its 38th year, believe it or not. As the reporter on The People's Court, he helped
0: transform rinky-dink disputes into TV drama. But that wasn't his only job. He ran a television production company on the side, and he was always on the lookout for his next big project.
6: My partner and I were sitting in our office in Los Angeles one morning. We were going through the newspaper, and there was an article talking about vaults belonging to Al Capone, supposedly had been discovered in Chicago. And my partner and I decided, let's look into this.
0: That article said one person controlled access to Capone's former headquarters. Pat Porter of the Sunbow Foundation.
6: We approached her and said we would like to explore to see if there really was something there. And I arranged to meet her. She showed me around the building. And the more she talked about it, the more sense it made that there could be material that Capone and his men left in there. Could be money, (laughs) could be bodies, could be guns, could be whatever. It sounded logical. Doug
0: Llewellyn and his business partner made an agreement with Porter they would try to sell a TV special about busting into Al Capone's secret stash. If they got a deal, they'd give the Sunbow Foundation a chunk of the broadcast proceeds.
6: So we put together a dynamite presentation reel all about Prohibition era, you know, Chicago in the 1930s when Capone was there and the magic of of what a show like that could be like.
0: Llewellyn was feeling good when he took a sizzle reel to New York and made his pitch to ABC and NBC. Both networks were intrigued at first, but they got hung up on the same question. How could they know for certain that there was something exciting inside that chamber in the Lexington Hotel? The truth was that they couldn't know. That wasn't what the networks wanted to hear.
6: We couldn't get anybody interested for some reason or other. It just didn't fly.
0: So it looked like Al Capone's secrets wouldn't get laid bare on national television. But then Llewellyn heard about one
6: more potential buyer. Someone did mention to us about a new company that had started in Chicago called Tribune Entertainment.
3: At the time, it was essentially a startup within a very large media company, the large media company being Tribune Broadcasting.
0: Alan Grafman joined Tribune Entertainment in 1983. As director of business affairs, he was left with a big task.
3: To create, develop, produce, and distribute television programming, that our stations could play, and also that we could make money. He was looking for something big
0: and splashy. At the time, the crown jewel in Tribune Entertainment's portfolio was the least sexy show on television, the U.S. Farm Report.
4: Yes, it's our annual tuxedo show, because last Saturday night, we were in Bismarck, North Dakota, where the nation's four outstanding young farmers were named.
0: Back in L.A., Doug Llewellyn got a tip that Tribune was hungry for a new idea.
6: And they said, you guys got to pitch this to the people in Chicago. So we did exactly that. We went in and uh, gave them our dog and pony show. And boy, they went for it.
3: This was better than anything we had. What was in the basement behind this wall of concrete? The potential that there might be something really interesting just lit my imagination.
6: They said, this is, you know, it's a Chicago story. This will be sheer magic. And we decided if we could do this, we would have to blast the vaults open and do it on live television.
3: You know, a tape show? It would have been a history of Al Capone in Chicago. This was the mystery of Al Capone's vaults. What's in there, ladies and gentlemen?
0: Tribune Entertainment agreed to finance a two-hour TV special. They paid Doug Llewellyn's company $900,000. Pat Porter and the women of the Sunbow Foundation got $50,000 and 1% of the royalties. Since the big broadcast networks had rejected the special, the mystery of Al Capone's vaults would be televised in syndication. That meant Tribune Entertainment would sell the show to local stations all over the country. It was up to Doug Llewellyn to make sure they had something to sell.
6: We went back and forth to Chicago probably 15 times from Los Angeles doing research. There was just so much work to be done.
0: The mystery of Al Capone's vaults wouldn't just be a live excavation. There would also be documentary segments on the history of gangland Chicago. The producers sat down with people who knew Capone, journalists who'd covered him, and experts like Tim Samuelson.
4: It was a normal day at the Landmark Commission office, and I get a telephone call from a production company.
0: Tim's job at the Commission on Chicago Landmarks didn't typically involve consulting on flashy TV specials, but he was happy to help, so long as he could remain honest to his profession.
4: I have to tell the truth. The historian's not going to make things up. Well, some of them do, but I try not to. Tim knew
0: everything there was to know about the Lexington. So he gave tours to the producers and anyone else who needed a guide.
4: One time they made an appointment and they didn't tell me what it was. And so I dutifully went down there. And who is there but the famous psychic Irene Hughes? In Chicago, psychic Irene Hughes has received commendations from police for her efforts in helping them solve no less than 15 murder cases. So we go wandering through the building, and there was this round hole, like a manhole cover, in the basement floor. And she said, there is something of Capone underneath there. And I said, Well, Miss Hughes, that is the cover for the sewage ejector. If anything of Capone survives down there, you want to steer clear of that.
0: Another time, the producers asked him to hurry over because they discovered a
4: torture chamber. And I said, Torture chamber? This is the electrical closet, this is where the fuse boxes were. Oh, come on, folks. Tim thought the psychic and
0: the torture chamber were harmless diversions. But he did see a more fundamental problem with the mystery of Al Capone's vaults.
4: It wasn't like those vaults were a complete mystery. In Chicago, it was very common that when you were building a building, you would build a space for storage or delivery of coal, under the public sidewalk.
0: That storage space was known as a Chicago sidewalk vault. Tim felt certain that was the kind of vault in the basement of the Lexington.
4: The thing about a sidewalk vault is it can be a bit of a problem over time if it's not well maintained. These sidewalk vaults would start to leak.
0: When that happened, workers would typically cave in the vaults and fill them with whatever they could find.
4: Slag that comes from the old steel mills, dirt, uh, construction rubble from a demolition site. So now the sidewalk vault is gone.
0: In other words, an old Chicago sidewalk vault
4: wasn't like a bank vault. It was more like
0: a garbage dump. And I
4: even tried
6: to tell them, but, well, they didn't listen to me. You know, he was one opinion. There were, I'll tell you what, we brought in very high, high-class x-ray equipment to try and penetrate through the walls to see if we could find anything. It
3: wasn't conclusive. We knew that, mm, we don't see anything that we'd like to see, but who knows what's beyond or what's behind what we do see. The production team figured they'd done all the pre-show exploration they could do but they still had one big thing to sort out. If we're going to do it live, you need a host, someone to pull it together.
6: We knew we needed somebody who could walk and talk without a written script. As luck would have it, a guy
0: with just that skill had recently become available. Geraldo Rivera had a reputation for taking on stories that other reporters wouldn't touch. In the mid-1970s, he broadcast the uncut Zapruder film of JFK's assassination. Later, as a correspondent for ABC's 2020, he did the first network news report on the AIDS crisis.
5: The story of the birth and malignant spread of the killer disease may seem like a scenario from some horror movie, but this is real life.
6: We said, you know, Geraldo would be great to do this show. He's a reporter, and he knows how to dig for a story. And most importantly, he was out of work.
0: In the fall of 1985, Geraldo had gotten into a big fight with his bosses at ABC. He publicly accused them of burying a story about Marilyn Monroe's alleged affairs with the Kennedy brothers.
5: Make a long story short, I got fired.
0: That was the most famous unemployed person in America. That's Geraldo from an interview in 2011. I was so hurt
5: and and so, in a way, embarrassed. I didn't want to go
0: looking for a job, so I decided to sail my boat around the world. As he got his boat ready, he was in contention for one job. He'd applied to be the first journalist in space, an offshoot of NASA's Teacher in Space program. But that astronaut deal was looking unlikely In the early days of 1986, Geraldo had just lost his seven-figure salary and needed some quick cash. So when Doug Llewellyn got his phone number, he answered the call.
6: And I spent about an hour and a half on the phone with him. And by the time we finished that telephone conversation, he had agreed to do the show. Geraldo's
0: fee was $50,000, the annual cost of maintaining his sailboat. As soon as he signed the deal, He disappeared onto that boat for more than a month. When he finally made it to Chicago in March of 1986, there were five weeks until the show went on the air. Geraldo cut his hair, trimmed his mustache, and got to work hyping the project.
5: Garface Al Capone may have built it, and nobody knows what's in it. Some say money, some say bodies, some say it's booby trap, and we're going to open it.
2: So we were really, really baiting the audience early on.
0: Joni Behac was the publicist for The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults.
2: And it was my dream assignment. (laughs) I remember before the broadcast actually aired, I was having dinner with a friend at a Mexican restaurant, and everybody was talking about where they were going to be to watch the show. And that's sort of when I knew that it was on everybody's mind.
7: There are TV production crews here. There are federal tax agents. There may even be a few ghosts here waiting to see what happens when they crack that safe.
2: And it kind of was such a unifying experience when people said, what do you think, Senator? What do you always think? I think. It was just the suspense of it all was so exciting.
0: There was a lot riding on that vault in the Lexington Hotel. For Geraldo. This was his chance for a big comeback, to prove that he was still a star, and to show his old bosses at ABC that firing him had been a huge mistake.
2: So he had a lot of skin in the game with this broadcast, and he knew it was a risk. Tribune
0: Entertainment's Alan Grafman was feeling the
2: pressure too.
3: Tension mounted day by day. I don't know how else to say it. We had a million bucks in the project, we had sold it to 190 stations, sold it internationally to 20 countries.
0: How much experience did you have with live television?
3: None. <laughs> well, they're they clearly in great hands. <laughs> but, but not to worry, it's only in prime time around the world. Let's take a quick break. I can tell you where I was afterwards. I can tell you where I was uh, the days and weeks before, but that day is a flippin' blur.
0: On Monday, April 21st, 1986, Alan Grafman was at the Lexington Hotel worrying about logistics.
3: Are the satellite trucks in place? Is Geraldo prepped? Crowd control? Is our script done?
2: I remember going out and then seeing all these different reporters from all over the world.
0: Publicist Joni Bayhack saw camera crews from as far away as Europe and Asia. And it wasn't just journalists who wanted to be close to the action.
2: And Mr. T was there with like a t-shirt and a weird hat and all these gold chains. It was so cool. Uh, And I was right in the middle of it.
0: Joni took a photo that night of Mr. T standing in a crowd, waiting around to see what was going to happen. There's a guy behind him holding up a commemorative shirt. It says, I was there. April 21st, 1986. Al Capone vault open.
4: The crew of the show were all sneaking out to buy these t-shirts. I bought one myself.
0: Historian Tim Samuelson was standing by at the Lexington, just in case the production team needed his expertise. 25 blocks away, producer Doug Llewellyn was mingling with the crowd, at an Al Capone safe-cracking party.
6: Everybody having a good time here? I think they're having a grand time. We were all gung-ho. We were confident that what we had to show the audience was really great.
2: Come to the chicken expert, because when it comes to tender chicken... Finally, at
0: 7 p.m. Central, it was time to make television history.
3: The lights are working, the mic's working, the satellite is working live from Chicago.
5: I'm Geraldo Rivera, and you're about to witness a live television event. A massive concrete vault has been discovered. Some think it belonged to none other than the notorious Al Capone. Well, tonight, for the first time, that vault is going to be open live.
6: We had cameras in helicopters. The show opened with a helicopter landing right in the middle of Michigan Avenue and Cermak, which is where the hotel was. It was an exciting, exciting evening in Chicago. After that helicopter landed,
0: Geraldo strolled inside the Lexington and headed downstairs to show the audience around.
5: There are also these hidden staircases. You can see them now only because we have torn the wall away. There's another one over here.
0: Check it out. Geraldo said the mystery of Al Capone's vaults was still a mystery to him,
4: too.
5: Now what, if anything, that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together.
4: I was stationed on the first floor, and there's a feed. They were broadcasting the actual live show.
0: Tim Samuelson felt certain that there wasn't any buried treasure in that basement. He was about to find out if he was right.
4: I'm sitting and watching the monitor. They're going to drop the first section of wall. But
5: now we are ready to tear this massive slab away and we're going to do it with the help of a miniature bulldozer. Believe it or not, we've lowered one into the basement.
0: This was just phase 1 of a multi-part construction project. After a short commercial break, the mini bulldozer
4: was ready to roll.
5: Okay, Richard. okay uh, without further ado, let's take the wall down. Let's go. Take it down. Let's go.
4: Dropped the wall, and you could feel the building shake. And then it shows Heraldo going to the newly opened wall. And here you can see, here's the rubble I thought would be there.
5: Okay, it's about like we figured this. Still in the, uh, in the beginning areas, it's got uh, other, you know, it's 20s junk, definitely 20s junk.
4: And there's two little bottles that were tumbled right out, and Geraldo picks up these two little bottles and says, "We hey, found some old stuff already.
5: I think, uh, uh, it's a prohibition din. It's a Capone's <laughs> dance up now,
0: To we... viewers at home, these dusty bottles look like a promising start. It wasn't even 7.30 yet. There were still
4: more than 90 minutes left to go. Well, then I get called from upstairs Tim, Tim, you know old bottles, don't you? Well, yeah. Come down here. So now I'm in the basement at the scene of action. And here were two little bottles dated 1948. 1948
0: was 16 years after Al Capone moved out of the Lexington Hotel and one year after he died. Those bottles were trash, not Prohibition-era treasure. And I said, I'm sorry, fellas. But remember, this was just phase one. There was still so much more of the Lexington to explore and more than 90 minutes left to find the real bounty. Down in the basement, Geraldo was relentlessly upbeat.
5: Our tests indicate that this is a very, very deep chamber. So don't expect to see gold bars right out front. It's probably not going to work that way.
2: Geraldo was the perfect guy to do it, because he had the gravitas, he had, the, you know, the melodrama in his personality. Joni
0: Behack worked alongside Geraldo before and during the broadcast.
2: He added color to every part of the documentary and every part of the string along the viewer to what's inside, what's inside. In my opinion, he butchered the whole thing. Jules Rubin and his dad, Harold, weren't at the
0: Lexington that night. They were watching with the crowd at the Al Capone safe-cracking party, hosted by Doug Llewellyn.
1: I can remember being there, and it was all glitzy and, you know, gangstered up.
0: Llewellyn had met with Weird Harold in the months leading up to the live broadcast. But the Lexington Hotel's leading scavenger didn't make the cut.
1: I remember that making me a little bit twisted out of shape. And, yeah, they never really even acknowledged that he had anything to do with it. But yet, they invited us to the party.
0: With his dad cut out of the show, Jules didn't think much of Geraldo's take on gangland history. And his opinion sunk even lower when a pre-recorded segment started to play. I can
1: remember watching... Geraldo Rivera as he's going through the gymnasium.
5: This big second floor room in the Lexington Hotel was basically the gangster's gymnasium, but it also had a more sinister purpose. This was the target practice range for Capone and the boys.
1: And, and I thought to myself, no, no, they didn't shoot the Tommy guns in the gym. They just didn't happen.
5: And during that time, what better weapon to hit what you were aiming at than this one, the Thompson submachine gun.
2: And he said, the mob called it the typewriter, but we all knew what a, a bloody, bloody tale, tale of, of terror. terror.
5: If the Colt was the weapon that won the West, they say this was the
2: weapon that made, made the, the 20s, 20s roar. roar. That's so Geraldo.
0: Geraldo didn't just want to talk about Tommy guns. He wanted to fire them on camera.
5: I've shot most modern weapons. I haven't use this one yet. Uh, Is it difficult to fire?
7: No, it's a very easy weapon to fire. It has very little rise. It is extremely accurate and it's very comfortable to shoot.
0: The guy Geraldo was chatting with was a Chicago gun shop owner named Sherwin Tarnoff.
7: I was the uh, special effects and weapons master and I supplied a lot of the uh, things that they needed.
0: When they were getting ready to tape the gymnasium scene, Sherwin loaded a vintage Tommy gun with 50 rounds of blanks. Geraldo told him that wasn't going to work.
7: He said, this is a docudrama. We have to use real bullets. I said, it's too dangerous. I said, shoot 50 rounds of machine gun bullets at that wall. You're going to have bullets bouncing back all over the room. So he insisted.
5: Now, one point I want to make very clearly right now, this is live ammunition. It's not like the cop shows you see on TV. This is the real stuff, 45-caliber, hot ammunition.
0: Sherwin loaded the Tommy gun with low-capacity bullets with very soft heads. But he regrets doing even that, especially given what Geraldo did next.
7: I said, don't move till the gun stops firing stay right in the square that I have marked out on the floor.
5: So I just watched my burst and aim by the Watch burst. your burst where
7: it's going. He started firing, and about, I would say, a few seconds into the firing, he decides to run with the gun, firing towards the wall. He took about four steps, and thank God he ran out of ammo. Unbelievably reckless.
6: Well, Geraldo, he loved doing that. That was really great. And it worked.
0: The live broadcast was going pretty much as planned. The bulldozer was digging. The tape segments were rolling. And the crowd at that safe-cracking party was watching with rapt attention.
3: And then as the evening progressed, the elation slowly gave way to tension as to how is this going to end?
0: Phase one of the excavation hadn't revealed anything but those old bottles and a vintage sign for the Adams Express Company. Now, with about an hour left in the special, it was time for phase two.
5: You got to clear the basement now, everybody. Clear the basement now. Let's go. Everybody upstairs. When we come back uh, from this commercial break, um, we're going to blow that wall up.
0: (laughs) This was the big moment. And it was what Harold Rubin had always fantasized about the mystery of Al Capone's vault, was going to get cracked by blasting the thing to pieces.
5: Here's Sherwin uh, Tarnoff, the man who uh, taught me how to use the Tommy gun. He's also an explosives expert. Tell me about it, Sherwin.
7: We're going to use 60% dynamite sticks. We're going to use two sticks located at the bottom of the wall.
0: How much did you feel like they wanted it to be real versus wanting it to be like a movie?
7: They said to me, Well, what's it going to look like? I said, the walls will fall down. He says, no explosion? I said, no, not really. He says, well, we can't have that. I says, what do you want me to do? I'll put flashbangs on the front of every one of them. He says, we'll do that.
5: Clear. What's the uh, classic phrase? Fire in the hole. Fire in the hole.
0: Geraldo had his right hand on an old-timey plunger with a handle. The kind Wiley e. Coyote might use to trigger an explosion.
7: We brought that in so Geraldo could do that while I pushed the button.
0: <laughs> so the plunger actually wasn't connected to anything? No.
5: Four, three, two, one.
0: The flashbangs went off, the wall toppled over. And when the dust cleared, there was a whole lot more debris.
5: We're, we're digging in. We're getting there. <laughs> we're finding out what's happening. The mystery...
0: All of that shoveling turned up jack squat. Not even any more bottles. It was over. And there were still more than 45 minutes left to go.
2: And they're still digging, like, little, like my puppy does. You know, when he's digging in the, in the grass.
5: Okay, uh... Nothing really new and exciting to report yet. We're still digging.
0: He was trying to put up a good front. But Tim Samuelson suspects that Geraldo knew what was really happening. Tim had caught a glimpse of him an hour earlier, not long after that first wall came down.
4: Geraldo was actually way down at another end of the basement. And he kind of kept to himself when he wasn't on camera and there was a milk crate there, and Geraldo sat on the milk crate and put his hands over his face.
0: There were still more pre-recorded segments left to run on various people Capone had killed and the gangsters' final days in Miami. Every time Geraldo came back on the air after one of those taped bits, he sounded more defeated.
5: I don't quite know how to tell you this at uh, eight minutes to the hour, but we found another wall in there.
0: There wasn't anything behind that wall either.
6: We didn't find bodies or we didn't find money. There really technically was not much there. Wasn't anything there.
0: There was a bottle.
6: A bottle. Yes, you're right.
0: (laughs) Had you talked in advance about if there's nothing in the vault, then here's how we should play it? not really <laughs> that's one thing we did not do
5: all right come here guys come here hey lee lee get out of that thing come over here, come here.
0: minutes before 9 p.m central time geraldo asked the men who'd done the excavation to gather around then he addressed the people watching all over the world
5: it seems at least up to now that we've struck out with the vault i'm disappointed about that as i'm sure you are so, um, what can I say? I'm sorry. I would thank my buddies here for doing the job. Uh, thank you for watching. I promised all the critics that if we didn't find anything, I'd sing a song. So, uh, uh, Chicago, 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 that's toddling town. All right, I'm going. I'll see you. Good night. I'm sorry. See you next time. Right. Take it easy. On State Street, that great street, I just want to sing.
1: And I can remember the abruptness at the end of it all. And just like the disappointment and then it was done. That's how you're gonna end it?
2: Geraldo, be funny, don't sing.
3: I was in the zone of, wow, what a bummer of an end.
6: I would have tried not to walk off that way like Geraldo did, I, what the heck, I wasn't doing it. So it's hard for me to say. We had a party after the show, and Geraldo did not come to the party. I know he was devastated. Geraldo
0: says he stopped by the party for a moment, but spent most of the night at a nearby bar, pounding tequila. In a 2011 interview, he said that he tried to shut himself off from the world. I knew that I had wrecked my reputation, that I had fallen
5: into the trap where I was exactly the caricature that everyone said I was and I'd never work again in the business.
0: The critics were not kind. The Chicago Tribune called the special rapid-fire nonsense. The LA Times wrote that there were two empty vaults in Chicago. One was in the basement of the Lexington Hotel, the other inside Rivera's head. When Al Capone's vault gets name-checked today, it's shorthand for big-time build-up with zero payoff. Or, if you're feeling less polite, for massive consumer fraud. Although Homer Simpson was way more charitable than that.
6: There was nothing in Al Capone's vault, but it was not Geraldo's fault. Don't! Oh!
0: Alan Grafman confessed to me that he'd suspected they might come up empty. All of that fancy X-ray equipment they'd brought in before the show, it hadn't turned up anything super promising.
3: More and more, we were coming up with dead ends. So we had an inkling, uh, and I don't even know to this day if Geraldo knew exactly, but we knew it could turn
0: out disappointing. It did turn out disappointing for the people watching
3: at home. And Alan Grafman thought that he might have to pay the price. We could have been fired. We, we didn't know. Could have been that the the advertisers were going to boycott us for the next twenty years. He learned his fate the morning after the special aired. Get up at five thirty, go into the office, and at six o'clock the ratings come across. They come across by fax.
0: Are you standing by the fax machine waiting? Uh, for essentially,
3: it? yeah. We're huddled around a table. We're all looking at the same fax. <laughs> Is it spit out like? Like a dot matrix. Well, (laughs) uh, it's a little better than that. I mean, we're we're staring at it and we're looking at something no one had ever seen before. It was crazy, crazy numbers.
0: The mystery of Al Capone's vaults attracted 45% of all viewers in New York City, 61% in L.A., and 73% in Chicago. All told, 28.5 million American families watched the special. It was the most ever for a syndicated TV show, beating out David Frost's interviews with Richard Nixon.
3: The industry was agog. Who is Tribune Entertainment? Who is Alan Grafman? We were a hot property.
6: After we had gotten the readout of the ratings, we went up and slid those under the door of Geraldo's suite. That changed his mind. He then got pretty excited.
0: When he saw those ratings, Geraldo laughed so hard he nearly choked. All of a sudden, his agents were inundated with million-dollar offers. By the next year, he and Alan Grafman had struck a deal for a new daytime talk show.
5: Let me introduce our guests today. They are young, smart, good-looking kids who have murdered in the name of Satan.
3: It was the tent pole that supported Tribune Entertainment and Geraldo for over a decade. And that's what we found in the vault. The way Alan
0: Grafman and Doug Llewellyn see it, the mystery of Al Capone's vaults can't be considered a failure.
3: For them, it was a colossal triumph. It turned out to be a moment in history that many people look back with a smile. And the criticism
0: was that America got suckered or conned, right? Yes.
3: Yeah. Did you feel bad for people that had watched it?
6: No, not at all. We promised two hours and we delivered two hours. The show was a success from a television point of view. The only thing was there wasn't anything in the vault. Okay, so be it. We didn't promise anything would be there. All we said was, this is what we think is here. We're going to explore together and find out.
0: Is there anything you would do differently for that show in retrospect?
6: Not really. I think we did the best we could, uh, and I wouldn't have changed anything, quite frankly.
0: When Harold Rubin died in 2007, he was still bitter that his own quest to profit off the Lexington Hotel got cut short.
1: It's one of those things in life that, to me, it's tragedy, minor tragedy, but a tragedy. It was a tragedy for my father. I mean, it left a pretty big impression on me. Uh, It's a a large part of my life. I miss the weird heraldness of it all. Uh, I do miss that.
0: Less than a year after the special, the Sunbow Foundation dropped its plans to rehab the Lexington, saying it was short on funds. In 1995, a judge declared the building a public nuisance. That fall, the hotel got demolished. An architect who studied it before it met the wrecking ball didn't find any secret tunnels or hidden staircases.
4: Let's see what it says here. Leasing office. Maybe I should look for an apartment here. Wouldn't that be the ultimate?
0: The block where the Lexington one stood is now home to a high-rise luxury apartment building. When Tim Samuelson took us to the neighborhood earlier this year, He couldn't help pointing out everything that had
4: changed. Here in the corner is a grocery store, the South Loop Market. That's where the old Lexington Drugstore used to be. So if we walk down the side here and go halfway through, there's a doorway here. That would be about the location of where there was an alley.
0: Tim started rooting around to see if there was anything left of Al Capone's old headquarters.
4: All right, so now here we're amidst a row of dumpsters. Now, they probably have pretty good security on this, so I doubt we'll get in there, but we can try it. Let's walk around back, and at least we'd be kinda near where we want to be. But now we're at the end of the parking garage, and actually, this is what the alley used to go through. It's gone now. So, anyway, here's an open door that leads into the side of the Lexington Hotel. Let's see where it takes us. Look at all these doors. Is this open?
0: I could tell you what we found on the other side of that open door. But maybe some mysteries are better left unsolved. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love for you to sign up for Slate Plus. The support of Slate Plus members is crucial to our work. Members also get to listen to One Year without any ads, and they get a special behind the scenes episode at the end of the season with me and senior producer Evan Chung. If you sign up now, you can get the first three months of your membership for just $15. To get that deal, go to slate.com one year plus to join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash one year plus. Next time on One Year 1986, an injustice in the Mississippi Delta blocks the Black community from taking power and inspires them to hit their hometown where it hurts.
6: We, We have tried our very best to reason with you, but the only thing you're gonna understand is economic pressure. So here it comes.
0: One Year is written by me, Josh Levine. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Sam Kim, Derek John, Sophie Summergrad, Madeline Ducharme, Evan Chung, and me. It was edited by Evan Chung and Derek John, Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1986 at oneyear at slate.com. And you can call us on the one year hotline at 203 343 0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to John Joslin, Bill Helmer, Ruth Ann Fowler, Billy Dambra, Steven Zahler, George Gorzolanchek, Jesse Pickett, John Bidstrup, Hilary Fry, Joel Anderson, Susan Matthews, Sol Worthen. Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1986.
4: We are probably pretty close to the exact area where the doorway that was bricked up, that they broke open for the television show, was right here. We're standing right at the spot. This is now tenant storage for the building, the Lex. So we're standing with these cages filled with all kinds of people's lawn chairs